0: Go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll continue to study His Word this morning. Father, we're so thankful that You have made each and every one of us this morning ministers of reconciliation. And we know, Lord, that even when we suffer for the gospel, it's worth it. We see the apostles, what a wonderful model, specifically Paul himself suffering nights of shipwreck, and beatings, and persecutions, and hungering, and thirsting, and doing it all for the sake of the Gospel, for the sake of the elect, that they might attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. We're thankful that we have all that we need in Christ, all the resources, all the blessings, all in Christ. We're rich in Him. We're thankful that that well of richness never runs out. It's a seemingly infinite well of blessing. And we're so grateful for that. And we haven't even experienced the fullness of that blessing Yet, we won't receive that until the end when our Lord comes and we receive glorified bodies and enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then we'll experience the fullness of our salvation, and we can only imagine how glorious that'll be. And even now, Lord, we're thankful that we have a foretaste of that. And the church, the Lord's Day, becomes a foretaste of heaven. When we gather together as the people of God in joy to worship You, to fellowship to hear the word to attend the means of grace and it's just a faint foreshadow of the fact that one day we will behold your glory in the fullness of thereof in the kingdom of God and reign with you forever and we long for that day but now as we open the scripture as we read your word as we think about the truth of your word we do pray for help we pray that you would guide us to accurately understand and interpret and apply these truths that we would know what the word says we would know what the word means by what it says And we would know how to apply it to our lives so that we might live as lights in the world for your glory. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And this morning we'll continue our study of this wonderful little book by considering verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. I've actually entitled this message to you this morning, The Test of Love, Part 1, The Love That God Requires. The Love That God Requires. And I've given it that title because in a few weeks, when we come to verses 15-17, through we're going to see The Test of Love, Part 2, The Love That God Prohibits. The Love That God Prohibits. But for this morning, we see The Love That God Requires. As you know, 1 John was written to refute the erroneous notions of the Gnostic heretics and to affirm the believers of Asia Minor in the truth, to uphold the truth for them. In the letter, John seeks to distinguish between true Christianity, which was propagated by the apostles and John, from false Christianity that was being purveyed by the Gnostic heretics. And in these five chapters, John seeks to lay out a series of tests by which we can distinguish between those two forms of Christianity, the genuine from the counterfeit. Tests by which we can determine if we are really in the faith. Tests by which we can determine if we are saved or unsaved. I've told you before that there are three tests that John lays out over and over again. The moral test, the doctrinal test, the social test. The true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. A true Christian is not just one who says he's a Christian. He's not a Christian in name only. He's a Christian because of what he believes, how he lives, and how he loves We've seen the first two tests so far. In the first four verses, John began with the doctrinal test. He presented the reality of Christ's deity and humanity. True believers believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 1 and going all the way to verse 6 of chapter 2, John presented the moral test. The moral test. True Christians no longer live in sin, but they live in obedience to the law of God, the commandments of God. We know that we know Him because we keep his commandments. But now starting in verse 7 all the way to verse 11, John now presents the third test, the social test, the test of love. Let's read our text together this morning. First John chapter 2 starting in verse 7. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, and yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It doesn't take an expert to look around the world and culture in which we live and realize there are many, many problems. <clears throat> if you don't believe me, just watch presidential debates, and you'll find out. You know, from murder <coughs> to abortion to theft to rioting and looting and and quarrels and fights. Clearly, something is radically wrong. It's radically wrong. There's a reason why we need to have guns and our doors locked and alarm systems because we live in a fallen and corrupt world. And though there are many problems, the Bible reveals that they all have a common source. All of these sinful actions are expressions of an evil heart that hates God and hates others. In other words, sinners have a love problem. Sinners have a love problem. The scripture gives us two great commandments, right? Love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments are central to the Christian faith. The Christian life is a way of love, it's a life of love. However, naturally, all sinners really love is themselves. Sinners are in love with themselves, they're consumed with themselves. Ours is the age of the selfie. That's the age in which we live. People love their mirrors and their selfies and their posting about their dinner and everything else. And by the way, I do that too, too sometimes, right? I contribute. But I mean, we, we are in an age where people are consumed with themselves. Sinners have a love problem. In John chapter 3, Jesus really got to the heart of the problem. In verse 19, we read these words This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And who is the light? Who is the light? Jesus. Jesus is the light. Everyone who does evil hates Jesus. Remember, back in chapter 1, I told you light is a reference to the life of God, the glorious life of God, which is marked by righteousness and truth. And Jesus is the very embodiment of the life of God, the righteousness and truth of God. He is the light of the world, and all who do evil hate Him. They hate Christ, they hate God. That's the problem. It's not that we're neutral, it's not that we're just kind of bad, but we really have good intentions. The problem is that we are born in a state of hating God. Romans chapter 1, verse 30, Paul put it even more plainly. When speaking of mankind in general, he says they are haters of God. God God-haters. That is the problem. Men naturally hate God. But not only do people naturally hate God, they naturally hate others. They naturally hate others. I mean, God gives us just two commandments. I mean, you can leave the others out, the two commandments. We can't even keep them. We can't even keep the two. In Titus chapter 3 verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this, speaking of even believers prior to their conversion. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That was you and me before conversion. We were given over To hatred. Our lives were marked by hatred. Naturally, we hate God and we hate others. If love fulfills the law, then hatred is an expression of lawlessness. Lawlessness is an expression of hatred. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Paul once again gets to the problem, and he says this. But realize this that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Did you get that? Men are... Lovers of self, lovers of money, unloving, haters of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We're there, aren't we? We are there. That's the problem. People have a love problem. Why are millions of babies killed every year? Why are people rioting and looting? Why Are people breaking into homes? Why do these things happen? Because people hate God and they hate their neighbor. They hate God and they hate those made in His image. That's the problem. People have a love problem. The good news is the gospel changes that. Salvation changes that. At the moment of salvation, God gives the believer a new heart. And as a new creature, the believer is enabled by God to love God and his neighbor. The Christian, as a new creation, loves others. And as we saw last week, that love expresses itself in obedience to God's commandments. Love is expressed in obedience verse 5 of chapter 2, John said, Love is perfected in us. That is to say, it has its intended result in us when it leads to a life of obedience to the Word of God. That's what love looks like. Love results in obedience. So that's our duty then. Our duty is to love. To love God and to love our neighbor. We are to love all men, but especially believers. Especially the people of God. Especially the church, the saints. Those who are of the household of the faith. We are to love one another. And in these five verses, John's going to give us three reasons to love. you need motivation to love, here's three reasons for you. Because love is an old commandment, love is a new commandment, and love is a test of assurance. Love is an old commandment, love is a new commandment, and love is a test of assurance. So first, love is an old commandment. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. John writes, Beloved... I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. So John begins verse 7 much like he did in verse 1 with a term of endearment, a term of love. The word beloved. Beloved. He's about to address them with regard to the love of the brethren, and he begins by setting himself up as the model and expressing his own deep pastoral love for those to whom... He writes, and He says, Beloved. That's a fitting title for believers, isn't it? Have you ever heard that title used at a, at a wedding? Dearly Beloved. And you thought, why do they talk in such archaic language? So why, why, do we, why do we call Christians Beloved? Because that's what we are. We're loved by God, we're loved by Christ, and we ought to be loved by one another. We're a people who are divinely loved. And John... Begins this exhortation to love by reminding. It's brethren here. Does yours say brethren? Yeah. Really? In verse one or verse seven at the beginning? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Just you. Very interesting. <laughs> well, mine says beloved. In the Greek, it's uh, the word that means love. It's those who are loved by God. So that's what they are. They're loved by God. We're loved by Christ. We're loved by one another. And John begins. By expressing his own love. And he says, beloved, that is, brothers and sisters whom I love. So now we're kind of getting close in our translations, right? Brothers and sisters whom I love. There you go, there's a compromise. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. Now, what commandment is John talking about here? What's the old commandment? He doesn't specifically say here. So what's the, the old commandment? In the previous passage, in verses three to six, John mentions the word commandments in the plural. But here he transitions from the plural to the singular. He talks about the old commandment. So what is the old commandment? He's talking about the command to love. The command to love. How do I know that? Because I've got some sort of divine insight? Yes, because I've got the Bible. The context. I know what John's talking about because of the context. Both the immediate context of 1 John 2, as well as the overall context of the whole book of 1 John. Remember, back in verse 5, just a few verses ago, John said, love is perfected in us. In verse 6, he said we're to walk as Christ walked, and we know that that is a walk of love. But then in verses 9 through 11, John's going to go on to specifically talk about love. He only mentions the word one time in the passage, but it's clearly his theme. In verse 10, he says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. But then in verses 9 and 11, he talks about the opposite of love, hatred. So John is clearly concerned with the theme of love, love and hatred. But not only does the immediate context inform us of this, so does the rest of John's writings. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, just a page to the right. Chapter 3, verse 11. John's going to give us some insight. We're going to learn from the Bible what John means in chapter 2. Chapter 3, verse 11, John says this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, here we go, John's going to tell us, that we should love one another. That's just like what he said in verse 7, right? The old commandment that we've had from the beginning, the message that we've had from the beginning, is that we should love one another. They go to 2 John, just a few pages to the right again. 2 John. That's John's second letter. It's one little chapter long. If you turn too fast, you'll miss it. And I want to read verse 5. 2 John, verse 5. There John says, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which you've had from the beginning. Here we go. John's going to tell us. That we love one another. That we love one another. Back to 1 John 2 now. What is the old commandment that's not new but old that we've had from the beginning? It's the command to love. The command to love. So John's theme here is love. And he says this is not a new commandment. In fact, it's an old commandment so old you've had it ever since the beginning. The command to love is as old as the beginning. The beginning of what? What's John talking about? Well, the beginning of our Christian lives beginning of our Christian lives. We've had the command to love from the moment of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul wrote this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God teaches us to love. We're taught by God to love. How does God do that? Romans 5, 5 tells us. Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. At conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within our hearts and with Him comes the love of God. He assures us of God's love for us and He produces God's love in us so that we are enabled and taught by God to love. So ever since you were converted, ever since you've been a believer, you've been taught and commanded by God to love. What's one of the first Bible verses that everyone memorizes? John 3.16. 9-316. God so loved the world. That's the heart of the gospel. The gospel's a message of God's love for sinners in Christ. Love is the very beginning of the Christian life. We're taught by God to love. But the commandment's older than that, isn't it? The commandment to love is older than my conversion and your conversion, it goes all the way back to the ministry of our Lord. What did our Lord teach His disciples over and over again? You are to love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Jesus taught His disciples to love. And we'll look at many of His statements about love in a little bit. But the commandment even goes back further than the ministry of our Lord. It goes back to the beginning of the Bible. All the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. I know most of us haven't read that book. But Leviticus 19:18 says this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That didn't originate in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was just reiterating what the Old Testament said. All the way back at the beginning of the formation of the people of God, they've had the command to love. So the command of love, the command to love is that which you have heard. It's that which you've heard from the beginning. The beginning of our conversion, the beginning of the ministry of our Lord, the beginning of the Bible, and since we know that the law of God is written on the hearts of all men, Romans 2, back to Sunday school and the heart of the law is love, that means that the command to love has been implicitly given ever since creation. Ever since creation. Love itself precedes creation, doesn't it? Love came before creation. Because God is love, 1 John 4 8 says. God is love. Love is an essential characteristic of God. God is love. And since God is a trinity of persons and has been so from eternity, there has always been love, perfect love, within the persons of the trinity. But the command to love itself begins in creation with the law of God written on Adam's heart. So the command to love is not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. It's an old commandment. And that's the first reason. You need to love because this is just antiquity. This is from millennia ago. This is God's commandment from the beginning that we... Love one another. But there is a second reason given here to love, and that's in verse 8. Verse 8. In verse 8, John makes a seemingly contradictory statement. He seems to contradict what he just said in verse 7. Look at verse 8. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. Now, wait a minute, John. Is it old or is it new? Is it old or is it new? What's the answer? Yes. Both, right? Alright, John, you're confusing us. It's old, and yet it's new. So the second reason to love then is because love is a new commandment. It's a new commandment. The word new, kainos in the Greek, could refer to new in time chronologically, but it could also refer to new in terms of its freshness. It's new in development. It's It's a new perspective. You can have the idea of something, a new development in something that is old. Something that already existed that comes in a new and fresh way. So it's old in terms of its timing. It's given from the beginning. But it's new in terms of its perspective and development. Let me read a passage to you that will help you understand what John is saying. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So Jesus says the command to love is new. But wasn't it in the Old Testament? Isn't it old? Isn't it from the beginning? Yeah, but it comes in the ministry of Jesus in a new way. What's the old commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment, Jesus says you shall love one another as I have loved you. That's the new perspective. It's as if Jesus raises the bar. The standard goes up. The old commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment, love others the way Christ has loved you. How has Christ loved us? What does a Christ-like love look like? We know the answer to that, right? The Gospel is the great demonstration of a Christ-like love. We've already heard John 3.16, but how about 1 John 3.16? You can go there. 1 John 3.16, just a page to the right, John gives us another great 3.16 passage about love, and he says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's a Christ-like love. It's selfless, sacrificial service. Giving yourself up for another. Serving another. Jesus loved us and gave Himself up for us. That is love. Later in chapter 4, you can go there with me. Chapter 4, verse 10. I figured I would torture you this morning and make you turn a little bit more than usual. Chapter 4, verse 10, John puts it this way. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he adds, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are to love like God. We are to love like Christ. God loved us sacrificially and gave His own Son. Christ loved us sacrificially and gave His own life. And now we are called to emulate our Savior and love sacrificially. Not only are we to love as ourselves, we are to love at the expense of ourselves. We are to love until it costs. Love in a way that hurts. In Romans 5.8, Paul said this, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing, isn't it? It's not as if we were good people working together with God, earning grace, and Jesus said, man, I want to come help them a little bit. Now These are helpless, God-hating rebels, and yet Jesus gives up His life for their salvation. That's the gospel. If you don't realize the depth of your depravity, you'll never understand the depth of divine love. If you don't grasp the reality of your corruption, you'll never grasp the reality of the divine love of God. God loved in such a way that Jesus bore judgment for those who hated him and he gave himself for their salvation. He's condemned, we're justified. He's bruised so that we can be in the kingdom. That is a Christ-like love. But love isn't just laying down your life for someone. It's more than that. In fact, the hardest part of love often is not giving your life. It's giving your life daily. It's the day-to-day sacrifices. This self-sacrificing love is demonstrated in other ways. Look at chapter 3 again. Chapter 3, verse 17. Right after saying that Christ laid down His life for us, in verse 17 He says this, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, love is more than just giving your life. It's giving your time. It's giving your money. It's giving your resources to help meet needs. That's what love does. Love sacrifices. Love serves. Love meets needs. Love puts others first. Love is humble. That's what love is. When's the last time we did that? I'm preaching to myself here, right? It's hard being a preacher when you've got to prepare these things. You're like, man, I blew it this week. When's the last time we did that? When's the last time you served someone else? When's the last time... You sacrifice for someone else instead of looking out for a good old number one, right? That's our motto. When's the last time we really sacrificed for someone? When's the last time we did the dishes for our wife? Took the trash out without being told? When's the last time we did that? Love seeks to put others first. It really cares about others. Love is described in many other passages as well, by the way. Uh, what do you think is the most well-known passage on love in the Bible? We hear it at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Let me read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 13. Just a few lines. You don't have to turn there. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. In other words, you can have all your religiosity, all your acts of religious service, if you don't do it in love for others and God, it is absolutely irrelevant. It is absolutely irrelevant. And then he goes on and says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. That's love. Selfless. Others first. It's not boastful, it's humble. It's not selfish, it's selfless. That's biblical love. According to Colossians 3.14, love produces unity. Love produces unity. It's the perfect bond of unity. According to 1 Peter 4.8, love forgives. Love forgives. Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Love forgives Sins, and that is what motivated God's love. It's that forgiveness of us, God, out of His sacrificial love, gave His Son, so that through His sufferings, God could forgive our sins in a just way. God's love is the basis then on which He forgives our sins. Love forgives. Love is sacrificial. Love is modeled by Jesus. He's the standard. This is a new commandment given. By our Savior. Now, if you're here today, friends, and you're not a Christian, let me say this Behold the love of God in Christ. Do you not see the love of God in the cross expressed to sinners? Would you not be wooed as you see Him there dying on the cross, abandoned by His Father, the wrath of God falling upon Him, Him making satisfaction to the justice of the judge? out of His great love for evil sinners, would the love of God not woo you to come to Him today? If you would not have the love of God in Christ, you will have the wrath of God in hell. There's no in-between. So if you're not a Christian today, please come to Christ. Come by faith and embrace this loving Savior who is the lover of our souls, and you will find Him to be a sufficient Savior. But He's the standard. So John says this old commandment comes in a new way, a new fresh way. We're to love the way Christ loved us. And this new command, John says, is that which is true in Him and in you. It's true in Him. It was given by Him. It was modeled by Him. He is the great exemplar of love. He exemplified this new commandment. But it's not only true in Him, it's also true in you. In us, in true believers. True Christians, having been regenerated by the grace of the Holy Spirit, having been made new creatures in Christ, having become with new affections, we now are enabled by God to love. True Christians are already living out this Christ-like love now as an expression and evidence of the reality of their salvation. And John's going to make that very clear in verses 9-11. through But it's true in us. And it's true in us, John says, verse 8 again, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does that mean? What does that mean? John yet again picks up on the themes of light and darkness. Remember, darkness refers to sin and falsehood, unrighteousness. Light refers to righteousness and truth. So John is saying that the darkness of sin is passing away. On the cross, Jesus dealt a fatal blow to the head of the serpent and to death. He crushed the head of the serpent. Now, the darkness of sin is fleeting. It is dissipating. It's soon to be eradicated. However, the true light of God's love is already shining in the world now. How? How? In us. Through believers. As we love others, as Christ loved us, the love of God is displayed in us And He brings glory to His name through us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the light of the world. He is. But Jesus, as He reigns in our hearts and in our lives, He makes us the light of the world. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. Anybody done that lately? light up your candle or lamp and stick it under a basket. No, we don't do that. The purpose of the light is to do what? Illumine the place. Verse 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. And as they see your love and your good works, it brings glory to God. That's what Jesus is saying. First 1 John 4.12, John says this, No one has seen God at any time, No one has seen God. God's invisible. Jesus is in heaven. How do they see the love of God? John tells us. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The world sees the love of God through us. They hear it from us as we proclaim the gospel, and they see it in us as we love one another with a Christ-like love. That's what John is saying. The new command to love like Christ is not only true in Him, but true in true believers who are already living out that command. And that brings us to a third and final reason to love. We should love, not only because it's an old commandment, not only because it's a new commandment, but thirdly, because it's a test of assurance. Love is a test of assurance. We see that in verses 9-11. through In verse 9, John states the test negatively. Verse 10, he states it positively. And then in verse 11, he states it negatively once again. So first we see it stated negatively. Look at verse 9. The one who says he is in the light, and yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who says. Yet again, John is exposing false professors. Those who say they're Christians, those who say they're saved, but in reality are not. Those who are lying about their salvation. John says, The one who says he's in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness even until now. What does it mean to be in the light? It means to be in the realm of righteousness and truth, the realm of salvation. It means to possess the life of God, to be in fellowship with God, to know God. It means to be saved. To be saved. Anyone, John says, who says he is saved but hates his brother is a liar and he is in the darkness. Who's our brother, by the way? You know, there's somebody in the Gospels who tries to get out of it. Jesus says, Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, Ha! Who's my neighbor, Lord? Jesus essentially says, whoever's around you in need of help, that's who's your neighbor. So who's our brother? Who's our brother? The word brother can be used several ways in Scripture. It could be used with reference to someone's biological brother, your literal brother. It could be used to refer to uh, your brother in terms of being of the same ethnicity, your ethnical brother. Paul uses it that way in Romans chapter 9 when he refers to the Israelites as his brethren according to the flesh. It could be used in reference to just our brothers in general as creatures made by God. We're all of one race, right? The race war, there's only one race. What are they fighting about? One race. But most of the times that the word brother is used in the epistles, it refers to spiritual brothers. And That would include both men and women, by the way. Brothers and sisters. Some of your translations will actually say that, like the ESV. It's talking about believers more than likely. Those who have the same father, namely God, are in union with Christ and have become brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's how John's using the term here. It's certainly true that believers should love everyone, even their enemies, per Matthew chapter 5, but we should especially love believers. In the Gospels, who does Jesus say his true family is? Remember, his mother's outside and his brothers. The disciples say, Lord, your mother and brothers are here. And he looks out and says, Who are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters? Those who do the will of God. That's my family. I'm looking out of my family right now, right? My spiritual family in the Lord. So Jesus says, That's my true family. In Galatians 6, Paul says, Let us do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. There's a special love owed to believers. Special love. So John's probably talking about believers. If you say that you're a Christian, that you're in the light, that you know Christ, that you are saved, and you hate other people, especially other Christians, you're a liar, and you're in the darkness even now. Even now. What does it mean to be in the darkness? Well, if light is righteousness and truth, darkness is sin and falsehood. You're in the realm of sin and error. You're in a sphere of spiritual deception. You're in Satan's kingdom. You're not in God's kingdom of light if you hate your brother. You're in the devil's kingdom of darkness. You're deceived and blinded and ensnared in the darkness. It's a state of spiritual deception. Unbelievers are marked by hatred. What is hate, by the way? We've got to define that word. I ask people on the streets all the time, have you ever hated someone? And they go, no. We've got to define hate. What is hate? Well, hate is the opposite of love. That's a no-brainer, right? Hate is the opposite of love. If love is selflessness, hatred is selfishness. Not shellfish. Selfish, right? Selfishness. Hatred is selfish. If love is sacrifice and putting others first, hatred is putting self first. It's self-consumption, self-seeking. If love is humility, hatred is pride. If love seeks the best for others, hatred seeks the best only for self. In it to win it. Back to 1 John 3. You see your brother in need. You have what it takes to meet those needs. You close your heart against him. How does the love of God abide in you? It doesn't. It doesn't. If you don't love your brother so as to give him his needs, you hate him. That's hatred. Hatred seeks division, not unity. Hatred seeks arguments and quarrels and fights, not peace. That's hatred. That's hatred. Now let me caveat that. We understand that as Christians, people are going to hate us. We're not going to be at peace with all men. We're going to strive to be at peace with all men as far as it depends on us. But we understand everyone's not going to like us. When we tell people the truth, they're going to hate us. We get that. But apart from people hating us because we preach the truth, that's their fault. That's not our fault. We should strive for unity and peace with all men, especially in the church. But when you deviate from the gospel, it's your fault. You've caused division, not the truth. Not the Christian. But love seeks unity. Hatred seeks division. And often, you know, we understand the most common manifestations of hatred. You know, it injures, it insults, it hurts, it kills. Those are the obvious manifestations of hatred. But the most dangerous manifestations of hatred are more subtle than that. They go under a different guise. They often, present, often our hatred presents itself in a noble cause. I can't help you, too busy helping my my family. I can't help you, I'm too busy serving God. Those are expressions of hatred often in our culture today. The Pharisees did that. Jesus exposed them. He said, you say to your mother and father, whatever I have is given to God. I can't help you. That's hatred. That's transgressing the commandment of God for your tradition, He said. Imagine reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love chapter, and looking for the opposite. Here's how it might read. If love is patient, then hatred is impatient. If love is kind and is not jealous, then hatred is jealous and unkind. If love does not brag and is not arrogant, then hatred is selfish pride and boasting. If love does not seek its own, hatred is self-consumed. If love is not provoked and does not take into account a wrong suffered, hatred is easily provoked to anger and unforgiving. If love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, hatred rejoices in sin and error and deception. That is hatred. So don't ask yourself if you love or hate. You'll let yourself off the hook a little too easily. Ask yourself this, Am I kind or unkind? Am I patient or impatient? Am I self-centered or am I self-led? Do I seek for myself only and exclusively and primarily, or do I seek for the good of others? Is my life marked by self-centeredness or selflessness and service? That's what you need to ask yourself. That's how we know if we love. If you're marked by selfishness and unkindness, you don't love. It's hatred. And we understand, by the way, that Christians don't love perfectly, do we? We don't love perfectly. I don't love perfectly. You don't love perfectly. There's sin in us. We love imperfectly. We're talking about the the pattern of your life, the direction of your life. If someone was to look at your life, the whole of it, not just today or last week or tomorrow, the whole of it, since you've been a Christian and specifically in the last several weeks, months, years, how would someone describe your life? Are you unkind or kind? Jealous? Impatient? Selfish or selfless and serving and looking out for the good of others? That's how we know if we love. And anyone who says he's a Christian and yet is marked by selfish hatred is in the darkness until now. Even now, if, you're, if you hate others, at this very moment, you are in a state of self-deception, self, self-deception, and you are under the wrath of God. That is your state if you're marked by hatred. So that's the test stated negatively. But then in verse 10, we see it stated positively. Look at verse 10. John says, "...the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him." If the one who hates his brother is not a Christian, then the one who loves his brother is a true Christian. He abides in the light. He's in the kingdom of light. He's in union with Christ. He is truly in the kingdom. He belongs to Christ. He's truly and genuinely saved. And there's no cause for stumbling in him. For those who are true believers and they express the reality of their faith by love for others, they have no reason to stumble into doubting their salvation, no reason to slumber about in a state of spiritual darkness and deception. They can have confidence as to where they're going to spend eternity. They can have confidence in their salvation because the love in their life displays that the love of God has been planted in their hearts. So true believers know they're saved because they love the brethren. Later in chapter 3, John says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That's how we know we're no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive because of our love life. John heard this truth from his Lord Himself. He heard it from Jesus. John's not making any of this up. He's just reiterating what the Lord Himself taught. In John 13.35, Jesus said, by, all, by this, all men will know that you're My disciples, if you what." of love for one another. That's the evidence. The evidence that you're in a loving, saving communion with God in Christ is you now, out of the overflow of that divine love, love others. Specifically, other believers. But in verse 11, John yet again states the test negatively one more time. He says, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one who is marked by hatred is in a state of spiritual deception, lives in the darkness, stumbles around, and has no clue where he's going. He has no clue that he's on a path of eternal destruction. That the way he's on is the way of death. He he fancies himself. How many even in our churches today, say, oh, I'm a Christian, fancy themselves that soon they'll be going to heaven only to be living in a state of deception. And when they die, they open their eyes and they're in the flames of God's wrath forever. What a horrific wrath. You see why John is so passionate about saying these things over and over again? We need these constant reminders. Oh, that if there's any in our midst this morning who are in a state of self-deception, that the Lord would waken you and open your eyes to the reality of your true condition and bring you to faith in Christ. What a horrific reality it would be to die in a state of deception. So he doesn't know where he's going. Those who live in hatred while claiming to be Christians think they're saved, and in reality, they are not. Hatred is the hallmark of a non-believer. And once again, John learned this from Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said this, He who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. He's in a state of deception, headed for hell, and has no clue. In 2 Peter 1, after calling his readers to make certain about their salvation and providing them with several qualities that validate that salvation, one of which is love, by the way, Peter then says this in verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. In other words, the one who lacks the qualities of a true believer, including the quality of love, can have no confidence that his sins have been forgiven, can have no assurance that he's saved, no confidence that he's headed for heaven, because his life betrays the, rea- the, the reality of his profession. So if you want to know you're saved, if you want to know you're in the faith, you want to have real assurance, then your life must be marked by love, not hatred. Of course, the very epitome of this self-deception were the Gnostic heretics. They claimed enlightenment. They said, we've attained a higher spiritual plane of knowledge and truth that you other Christians haven't attained. And because of that, they were puffed up, and in their pride, they hated their so-called brother. Though they claimed enlightenment, they walked in the darkness. They were deceived and headed for hell, along with all of those whose lives are marked By hatred. In chapter 3, right after saying, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, John then adds this, He who does not love abides in death. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Those marked by hatred are in a state of spiritual deception, spiritual death. They do not have eternal life. And hell will be their eternal home unless God's grace grants them genuine repentance and faith in Christ. In chapter 4, John states the test again in these words. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There's no way that you can be in a saving relationship with a God who is love. There's no way you can be born again and possess the nature of a God who is love and not love others. So if your life's not marked by love, you do not know God, you are not born of God, you are not a true believer. Assurance comes through genuine Christian love. Selfless sacrificial love. Why should you love then? Because it's an old commandment, because it's a new commandment, and because it's a test of assurance. You should love because it's a commandment we've had from the beginning. You should love because it's exemplified by Jesus, our Savior, and you should love because it provides real, substantial, objective assurance of our salvation. So what do we do? We do again what we're called to do every week Specifically, when we read 1 John, examine ourselves. Test ourselves. Is your life marked by selfishness or selflessness? Is it marked by hatred or is it marked by love? It's the difference between salvation and damnation. It's the difference between heaven and hell, deception and assurance, light and darkness. True believers believe the truth about Christ, they obey the truth of God's word. And they love others in truth from the heart. And by those three things, they know that they are truly in the faith. So the question this morning, brothers and sisters, is yet again, do you pass the test? If you look at your life and you see it's dominated by nothing but hatred and sin and selfishness, then you have reason to be afraid right now. Because right now, at this moment, you're in the darkness... You're under the wrath of God. And if you die in your state, you will go to hell. And if that's you, my prayer is that you would please come to Christ today. And if you need counsel after the service, it would be my joy to sit with you and open the Word of God with you and help you find real, true Christian assurance. But if you look at your life and you say, you know what, I'm sinful, not perfect, kicked the dog yesterday, didn't do the dishes like my wife said, But you know what? Overall, I love. I see growing love in my life. Service to others in my life. That's the mark of my life. If you can say that, then praise God because there's a work of grace in your heart and you can know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that You have given us real objective tests by which we can measure our profession of faith to find out if it's genuine or not. And we're thankful that You've laid these tests out so clearly, specifically in 1 John, that we can really and certainly know that we have eternal life. And I'm confident that this group before me this morning, and even I myself, that we belong to the Savior. That indeed we're a people characterized by love. Love for one another. Love for our community. Love for the world. Love for sinners. Love for the lost. Love is indeed a hallmark of our church and these people who are gathered together today. And I'm so grateful for that, for the love I've received, my family's received in being here, and the loving fellowship we enjoy throughout the service. And we look forward to even chatting and fellowshipping in love after we conclude this morning. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of a people who love. And I pray for those who are here this morning that may not know Christ, that are not marked by love, that they would come to know the love of the Savior. And out of the love planted in their hearts, it will overflow in love in their lives. They'll know they're saved and you'll be glorified. To which in we pray. Amen.